This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We make history every Thursday, so don't forget to subscribe. Now, this week we're focusing on the far southwest of England, Cornwall, and within Cornwall, a place called Lanson, which not only has an unusual spelling, but also two pronunciations, plus a castle, and inside that, a large whalebone. This despite Lanson being about 25 miles from the sea, in either direction, north or south. The story of Lanson is certainly an intriguing and varied one, and with us to tell it are curator of collections Ian Lines, Hi. and head of historic properties for Cornwall and Devon, Georgia Butters. Hi. Let's start with Georgia first of all, and I want to get into this name. We've already said Lanson a few times, but how else is the place referred to? Well, the BBC refer to it as Launson, and people that don't know the area might try to pronounce it Lanceston, which is how it looks on the page. But if you're proper Cornish, it's Lanson Meansom. Right. But if we're spelling it out, it's L-A-U-N-C-E-S-T-O-N. That's so, correct. Yeah, so it, it looks like it should be saying Launceston. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. It's Lanson. Okay. Correct. It's one of those weird English things, and I do apologise to international listeners, because uh, there are a few odd ones in English, like Gloucester, Worcestershire, you know, some of those other strange pronunciations. Uh, so, apologies. Let's, but we've got the name out of the way first. Okay. Let's talk about the geography then. Where's Lanson on the map in the uh, far southwestern part of England? Yeah, so it's situated in North Cornwall. It's on the far eastern edge of Cornwall, halfway really between Bude in the north and Saltash in the south. If you're driving into Cornwall, it's just straight off the A30 and it's situated between the two really big moors of Bodmin and Dartmoor and right on the River Tamar, which forms the border between Cornwall and Devon. But kind of slap bang in the middle of the sort of leg that sticks out into the Atlantic Ocean effectively. That's right. So you've come down from Bristol, you've gone through parts of Somerset, through Devon, and then just as you get over the border from Devon into Cornwall, the first town you come to is Launson. And when you arrive at Lanson, Meansom, at the castle, what do you see? Well, the first thing you see really dominating the skyline are the remains of this medieval tower or keep. And if you follow the road into town, it winds right the way round the edge of the castle with the curtain wall high above it. And this encloses the bailey, which is now a public green. And you can still enter the green through the north and south gates And once you're on the green, you'll see the footings of the great hall and the kitchen. And you'll also see a Victorian keeper's cottage. So if we were looking at it from the air, is it kind of like this stone structure on top of a mound, effectively? And then then the town town sort of surrounding it. Curls around it. That's exactly it. And, And in Lanson, you've got brilliant remains, really, really good quality remains of that medieval street pattern and those walls that would have encompassed the town around the castle. So who built this castle and when was it built? 
Well, it starts with the Normans. So in 1068, William the Conqueror seized control of Cornwall and he put a nobleman, Count Brian of Brittany, in control. And it's probably at this time that the first castle was built as a fortress and administrative centre for those new Norman rulers. Why was it important to build Lanson Castle in this particular location in Cornwall? It's a great strategic location. It's between the two moors, the two areas of really high ground in North Cornwall and the River Tamar. The main crossing of the River Tamar, remember that's the border between Cornwall and Devon, that main crossing at Polson Bridge is only about a mile and a half away from the castle. So anyone sighting a castle here can control the trade coming through. And before it was built, before the Normans, there was a settlement there called Landstephen or St. Stephen's, which had a monastery, a market and a mint. And by the time of the Doomsday Book, a castle has been built nearby and this has created a real focus for commercial growth and it becomes the capital of Cornwall. Does it get trade from the north coast and the south coast then being slap bang in the middle? It does. And it's also it's also controlling tin trade up country, as we say, from Cornwall. So it's in a really good strategic location. When you're at the top of the tower, you can see for miles and you'll have trade also coming up the Tamar River as well. So being in that location is really, really good for being able to control the wealth that is coming off those boats. Now, we talked briefly about the name and the pronunciation, but um, how did it even get that name of Lanson Castle to begin with? When it was first built, it was built in the manner of Dunheverd, and that's how it's recorded in the Doomsday Book, I believe. And as the town grew, it took the name Lanson from the derivative of Lanstephan and Tun or Ton, meaning estate. Much later on, it became known locally as Doomsdale or Castle Terrible. Right, OK, and we'll get on to that a bit, little bit later on <laughs> will, yeah. for those particular reasons. In a previous episode of the English Heritage Podcast, in fact, perhaps two, we've spoken about Richard, Earl of Cornwall. Um, he actually cropped up specifically in episode 73. When was he the owner of this site? Because he was an important man, wasn't he? And He really, really was. He came into possession of Lanson castle in 1227 when he was made Earl of Cornwall and it was during his ownership that the castle was really extended and remodelled to reflect we think his high status because he was one of the richest and most powerful men in England. The works that he undertook were really extravagant rebuilding and an example of this was the tower that you can still see today. So he inserted a new tower into the old Norman shell keep, essentially creating a tower within a tower, which is still striking today. You can see it from miles around. And he also improved the bailey defences and the gatehouses as well. But we don't actually have any building accounts from this time, so we can't be sure about exactly when he remodelled it. But does it sort of bear the hallmarks of his handiwork, would you say? Because he's he's involved in some other English heritage sites, landmarks in Cornwall as, as well, isn't he, during the time that he's alive? He is, yes. I mean, he built Tintagel Castle on the coast, which is a very different proposition 
at Tintagel, he was building a castle that was about entertainment and also status. Whereas at Lanson, this was going to be a castle that needed to solidify his power in the area and demonstrate how important he was. And it also needed to, as part of that, take its role as an administrative centre. So it was, you know, it was different, but yes, definitely something of Richard. Was he involved in Restormal Castle as well? Restormal Castle was actually remodelled by his son later. So when his son inherited, he remodelled Restormal because he wanted to turn that into the administrative centre of Cornwall. So just referring to Restormal Castle, which we did a while back, that's episode 178, if you want to find out more about that one, and uh, the line continuing through the uh, the earls there. But I understand that um, Lanton Castle suffered from neglect after Richard died. So bearing in mind it was this quite important hub of administration and power, how did that happen? Well, when Edmund, who was the son of Richard, inherited Lanson in 1272, he moved the administration functions of Lanson Castle further into Cornwall to Lostwithiel. And this was to be closer to the heart of the tin industry. And that's where Restormal Castle is. And he extensively rebuilt Restormal at that time. So in terms of Lanson, what this meant was its role was downgraded. But conversely, actually at this time, we have great archaeological deposits and documents that tell us about the day-to-day use and repair of the buildings. So later on in the 1300s, Edward, the Black Prince, became Duke of Cornwall and owner of Lanson Castle. And a survey was done which stated that the walls were in ruins, the chapel walls were broken, new roofs were needed. And so he undertook many repairs and and those continued also into the 1400s, but then there was subsequent decline. I see. Am I right in saying that it sort of declined ever since then, really? Yeah, it's certainly in terms of the defensive elements of the castle. There was some work done to it during the Civil War, but essentially those kind of big defensive walls and structures declined and the focus really became as a place of justice. I see. We will get on to those other aspects. For people who aren't too hot on their you know, royal families and English history, or perhaps are, are listening in another part of the world, or prefer geography at school, how did Cornwall become this thing called a duchy with a duke? Yeah, it's quite confusing, isn't it? Because we talk about an earl and then we start talking about a duke. And essentially, it was King Edward III of England who established a duchy in 1337 out of the earldom. So this is something that he bestowed upon his son, Edward Prince of Wales, also known as the Black Prince, who became the first Duke of Cornwall. And what the duchy did, it's it's an area of land. It's about the rights to land ownership and the wealth generated from that land. And it actually extends far beyond what is now the county of Cornwall. And the duke actually had far greater rights over Cornwall. And many of these are still in place. In fact, our current Duke of Cornwall is Prince William. Yes, and before that, his father, who's now the current king. Indeed. King Charles III. 
So that's been passed down through the previous Prince of Wales. So whenever you're Prince of Wales, you become Duke of Cornwall. That's correct, yeah. So what uses has the castle had over the centuries? If you had to give a brief overview, we we talked about this administrative centre, this place of power and prestige, but uh, it becomes other things, doesn't it, over time? It does. I mean, for a good chunk of the time, it becomes a centre for justice. It has court hearings. It is a place of imprisonment and it's also a place of execution. So in the 14 and 1500s, there were a number of rebellions by the Cornish and those Cornish rebels were tried, imprisoned and executed at Lanson Castle. In 1603, Richard Carew recorded Lanson Castle as Castle Terrible. And during the Civil War, it was a stronghold for royalists at times and a prison for soldiers and a really important observation point. But by the end of that conflict, it was in such a ruinous state in terms of the defences its usefulness at that point was really only as a prison, but we think that might explain why Parliament didn't destroy it after the conflict, as it did with so many castles that had been involved in the conflict at the time. Yes, because they um, slighted a lot of buildings, didn't they, so that they yeah. couldn't be used again. Exactly, I think, uh, exactly. And that didn't happen at Lanson. But of course, it did happen to some of some key sites in the English heritage portfolio. I can think of Kenilworth Castle, I think, was quite badly damaged, wasn't it, following the yes. uh, Civil War yeah. up in Warwickshire in the Midlands. Okay, interesting. So they saw the parliamentarians uh, used to this property effectively post the Civil War conflict. That's exactly it. Its role as a jail and court was still very much in use at that time. And Castle Terrible, does this stem from this jail time, this prison time period? It absolutely does. It was thought to be because the tower appeared menacing. I'm not quite so sure if that was the actual case, but that's, you know, it was thought that the tower and the jail and the conditions there all came to give it this local name of Castle Terrible. Was there also some recorded text about this as well? I gather that there was this quite well-known prisoner at one stage after the Civil War conflicts. Who was this person? Well, that was George Fox, who was founder of the Quakers and a well-known dissenter. And he was imprisoned for about eight months in 1656 at Lanson, which at the time was known as Doomsdale. And we have this wonderful excerpt from his diary that really describes the conditions in which he was imprisoned, which I can read to you if you'd like. Yes, do. So it says, he, the jailer, grew very wicked and devilish and put us down into Doomsdale, a nasty, stinking place where they used to put murderers after they were condemned. Few that went in did ever come out again in health. It was all like mire and in some places to the tops of the shoes in water and urine. And he would not let us cleanse it nor suffer us to have beds or straw to lie on. In this manner, we were obliged to stand all night. The prisoners would be talking of spirits that haunted Doomsdale and how many had died in it, thinking perhaps to terrify us. Now that sounds really grim, doesn't it? It sounds absolutely disgusting. I'm surprised that um, they allowed that to happen, but I suppose they were trying to punish them, weren't they? 
well, this is it. And that was the condition. You know, they were not going to put them in wonderful lodgings. But I do wonder if he spent eight months, what the quality of his health was like when he came out of there. What on earth had George Fox, this Quaker, the founder of the Quakers, actually done to deserve this punishment? So he was on a tour of the West Country preaching and he was a dissenter and dissenters at the time were Protestant Christians who had separated from the Church of England. So essentially he was running contrary to the norms of the time and that would have been and spreading a word that people did not want spread. So that's why he was imprisoned. Was he one of the most famous inmates then? Are there any others who um, crop up in the history books? He certainly was the most famous that we have there. There are notations of 41 Turks who were brought to the castle from St Ives for having been seized from a man of war. <laughs> so there are, there are others at various times. But yes, he was certainly the best known. And those Turks are prisoners of war, effectively? Yes. yes right. That's right. How long was it a prison then? Well, it was a prison until the new jail was built in Bodmin, which was in the 1800s. And at that point, that prison replaced Lanson. And we think it was demolished in about 1842. So a couple of hundred years as this prison use, would that be right? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, longer, actually. I mean, it had been used as potentially, you know, imprisonment, even in the time of the Normans and of Richard. So, you know, several centuries, actually, as that function. But if it had prison facilities, shall we say, back to the Norman period, would that be more of an ancillary yes. aspect? Yes, definitely. So it has it has a it has a history of housing people who aren't welcome, shall we say? Yes. Um, over several hundred years. <laughs> Troublemakers. <laughs> yeah. Seven, yeah. Okay. Yes, and we've described that in previous episodes as well, where you know you'd have a constable of a castle, wouldn't you? And they might be responsible for monitoring the inmates or whoever it was. Exactly. Um, or, or the guest. <laughs> the guests, yeah, um, in the stinking and noisome conditions. <laughs> yeah, or, or politi political guests, shall we say. Um, yes. So the story of the castle from the 1700s to the present day is emerging out of this jail period and mm -hmm. into what exactly? It's emerging into something that is more recreational, actually. So in the 1700s, Houses and gardens began encroaching onto the ramparts and the ditches became urban tips. And actually, the constable, as you've just mentioned, there was one in the 1700s who was also mayor of Lanson and had a win on the lottery. And he invested that win into building a lovely new mansion just outside the North Gatehouse and taking down the upper stories of the gatehouse where the constable would have lived. And at this point, the castle really starts to turn into somewhere of recreation because they split the grounds into two areas. There's the area with the jail at that point that was still going, but also this lovely open space, the castle green. And um, sections of the curtain wall are taken down so that you can have a beautiful view over towards the deer park on the hills opposite. So, yes, it becomes a, a place of leisure and recreation. I see. And then, yeah, it's in, in the 1800s, roads start to be built over the ditches and it really does cement as being a park at that point. There's winding paths and trees and gardens 
and the ruins are these kind of romantic ivy covered you know relics of stone wall and at that point in the Victorian period is when we get the keeper's cottage which is now our ticket office. Ah I see right so it moves into a place which is very much in the past and is sort of curated by the local people and sort of enjoyed as a piece of sort of art, I suppose. Yeah, and, and a place where one can dwell and have fresh air and and enjoy, enjoy things. There was a period in World War II where it was turned into a field hospital. And then after that, in the 1951, it was placed into guardianship, which, you know, English heritage are now the guardians of that space. But it was interesting that the period after the wall, when they were removing the buildings of the field hospital, which had actually removed some of the park features as well, that clearance of those military buildings actually enabled a huge number of excavations to take place. And this is, I think, where the whalebone was discovered later. Yes. And this is where we get to bring in Ian Lines, our curator of collections, and I suppose that makes you the curator of this mysterious whalebone. <laughs> it does, yes. The whalebone fits into the story as one of these artefacts excavated during these these rather extensive excavations of the castle that Georgia was just talking about. So the excavation started in the 1960s and ran through to the 1980s. So there was a, many seasons of excavation, which produced a very, very large collection of archaeology. So we're talking about, to give you an idea of the kind of amount of archaeology that came up from the site, we've got now about a tonne of animal bone, about the same amount of pottery, and over 2,000 metal artefacts. So we're talking about a very, very large collection of archaeology spanning the full history of the site, which George has talked about. So from the sort of Norman conquest through to actually the sort of World War II era and the period where it was a a, uh, hospital. So, I mean, you've got this large archaeological assemblage that kind of effectively illustrates the history of the castle. And the whalebone is just one of those objects that we recovered. It's possibly the strangest one, which is why we chose to incorporate it into the museum displays when we redid them last year. Very interesting. I'm really curious to know how this whalebone looks then, because um, people who know their sort of David Attenborough series or a international geographic, they all know that whales are probably the largest mammals alive on the planet currently. So how big is this whalebone? Where does it come from? Which part of the animal? It is a very interesting find. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a specialist in, in this kind of thing. So I'm, I'm sort of relying on uh, standing on the shoulders of other experts who've studied it. So to describe the object, it's about a half a metre across. So it's a very large thing. It consists of a sort of, I mean, you sort of know what a vertebra looks like. It's its just a large version of, of any other animal vertebra. So you have a sort of a large drum-shaped section in the middle. And then extending off that, you have these kind of arms that, that sort of head off in three directions from that drum-shaped section. They're actually called processes, which is something that I learned whilst working on this. So they're called transverse processes that extend out from this central drum as I said, it's about half a metre across. Wow. And 
what we haven't had done is any kind of DNA testing on the bone. So we don't have the kind of modern science to tell us exactly what species of whale it is. But by just looking at the kind of the measurements of it, give us a very good idea of the sort of species it would have come from. So at the size it is, we know that it is probably from a species like a blue whale or more likely a fin whale. The blue whale, as you no is you know that the largest species of whale fin whale is the second largest species of whale the vertebra itself comes from probably the kind of rear third it's the bit in front of the tail between the tail and the dorsal fin really so it's that kind of section of the animal that it's come from but to kind of you know give a bit more detail of that for those who don't know fin whales i mean you're talking about as you said one of the largest mammals on earth could grow up to about 27 meters long and weigh possibly up to 114 tons. So a massive, massive creature. So the question is next, where's the rest of it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. We did actually recover 20 pieces of bone from the site that are whale-related bone. Generally, they are bits of vertebra or ribs. And I mean, I presume that only portions of the whale ended up at the castle. So what happened to the rest of it? Who knows? So we've just got this sample of bones from the site. And we don't know when it arrived either. We've just got the fact that this sample of bones is on the site, has been on the site. So it's quite mysterious, really. We can go some way towards telling you sort of how it got there and, and sort of when, really, I suppose. I mean, the sort of how question... Lots of sort of explanations you could come up with about how a whale would end up there. Was it caught by a sort of whaling boat or was it a kind of chance discovery washed up on the shores? So we kind of, you know, have to try to figure out how it ended up there. So the first thing to kind of probably rule out is that it was a deliberate catch by a sort of whaling vessel. And we know that in the UK, the sort of whaling industry, if you like, didn't really start up until the kind of 1600s, 1700s. And that was when we started having whaling fleets in this country. In the earlier period, and we'll sort of come on to the dating of, of this later, but in the sort of earlier sort of medieval period, we know that England didn't really have a kind of a whaling fleet. And especially when you're talking about a large species whale, like a fin whale, it would have been too large to have been caught and landed by a, a boat at that time. So that kind of pushes us towards the explanation that this is more of a chance discovery and that it was probably kind of a beaching and something that was washed up on the shores of Devon or Cornwall and kind of local to Lanson. And I mean, if you think about it, like something like a whale being washed up would be quite a kind of prized resource, a prized find for for the locals. And we know that sort of in the sort of century before the time of Richard of Cornwall that we were talking about earlier, we know that the, the Bishop of Chichester, who was called Hillary, in 1148 was granted the rights to any whale that was found on the lands of the Church of Chichester. So by this time, the mid-12th century, we're already kind of talking about the idea that people were being granted the rights to whales and recognising the importance of that as a resource. And we can only assume there's not huge numbers of whales being washed up on the beaches of Chichester and the surrounding area. So the fact that they actually have this charter 
that includes reference to beached whales, essentially, suggests that they were, although perhaps an infrequent find, something that was considered really important. As a result of that, do you think that certainly the people in the higher echelons of power felt that it was a tasty meal, free food effectively? Did they consider it a high quality meat, a prestigious meat? Well, we definitely know that that's the case. I mean, and I sort of alluded to the date of this as being kind of medieval rather than sort of later. And that's quite crucial to understanding kind of how this whale whalebone resource might have been used at the castle. So it was, we've dated it not by scientific methods in the sort of analysis of the bone itself, but by where it was discovered by its archaeological context. And so it was discovered in the area of the kitchens in the outer bailey of the castle. So that's quite interesting in itself. So finding it in kitchens does make you think food. So the other aspect of that is that the date of the context it was found in dates to between about 1227 and 1337. So that's exactly the period that Georgia has talked about between Richard becoming the first Earl of Cornwall and encompasses his son and successor, Edmund of Cornwall, and then sort of is a period that sort of punctuates with the establishment of the duchy and the end of the story of Richard of Cornwall and his son. So it's the kind of real heyday of the castle and the time when it's a very uh, high status place and a royal residence. So all that feeds into the idea that there's a sort of link between the discovery of a whale and the kind of high status site of Lanson. So going to your kind of question about would people have eaten it and is it a kind of high high status thing? Well, I mean, obviously, we don't eat whale today, unless you're in parts of Scandinavia and Japan and other places. And it's generally quite a abhorrent thought, the idea of consuming whale meat. But in the medieval period, it was not a common food stuff, but it was a high status food. And we know it was actually referred to as the king's fish which is quite interesting for two reasons. One, because it makes a specific association between whale meat and the king. And secondly, because it calls it a fish, which we all know that whales aren't fish. So, But then to put that into perspective, they also considered beavers fish as well, which I thought was <laughs> right, okay. a slightly, slightly amusing thing. Basically, anything that, that swam in the sea was a fish and beavers have got kind of scaly looking tails. So they thought they were fish. And the same for whales as they were basically large fish. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, it's, it's a, a curious fact. But anyway, the fact that it's called the king's fish, we know that it gave this idea that the king was entitled to parts of a find of a whale. And we've actually got records from there's a, a, an English cleric and jurist called Henry de Bracton, who was writing in the 1240s and 1250s. So sort of contemporary of Richard of Cornwall. And he said of Wales, the king owns the head of the whale, the queen owns the tail. And that was just a little phrase that he used. And it seems to reflect the idea that from the mid-11th century, there was an idea that at least a portion of any whale that was found had to be surrendered to the king. So originally, that may have been the parts of the whale that were considered delicacies. So we know that the tongue of the whale and the liver were kind of the most prized cuts of meat. And it's possibly things like that that were claimed by the king. 
But we know that by 1315, Edward II is asserting the rights to the whole of a whale when it's found. And we've actually got accounts that prove that the king was actually claiming this. So we've got uh, uh, some royal accounts from 1315 to 1316, which record a sum of 105 shillings and 10 pence that are covering the cost of recovering a whale that was washed up in Anglesey, butchering it, storing it in salt to preserve it, and transporting it to London. So we know that the king was actually laying claim to this foodstuff for royal tables. When you think about the concept of Richard of Cornwall, who was, as Georgia said, you know, one of the wealthiest men in Europe, probably wealthier or as, at least as wealthy as his brother, King Henry III, he's exactly the kind of person who would have had access to something that was the preserve of the king. And you can imagine that it's a short leap to imagine the idea that, uh, that this whale that was washed up on the coast of Cornwall would end up at Lanson Castle on the dining table of the Earl of Cornwall to woo his guests with the, the amazing diet that was available to him. Yes, and perhaps the king came to visit to dine on this whale meat at the time with Richard, Earl of Cornwall, or his son. Yes, I mean, we know that actually, to be honest, you know, Richard of Cornwall was such an international, well, basically the international playboy of his day. And so he's sort of buzzing all around Europe and probably doesn't spend a huge amount of time there. But whether or not he's there as well, he's probably laying on, you know, huge feasts for important visitors and guest to the castle, whether or not he's there or not. So although he does spend, you know, his birthday and the occasional Christmas at, at Lanson Castle. So so we know that he would have been holding quite fantastic banquets and things there where whale meat would make a, a very kind of plausible dish for, for something like that. Presumably then, because there's only been this one set of bones discovered at the castle, perhaps it was just a one-off beaching that caused this whale to be dragged up to the castle that's sort of 20 odd miles from either beach north or south it's really difficult to say i mean if we did a sort of extensive uh, program of scientific testing and dna testing on on the bone that we've got we might be able to say whether there's more than one species or more than one kind of whale carcass represented amongst this collection of as, as i think i said 20 bones that were found in the assemblage so it could have been more than one. It could have been one. I mean, we don't know really, but certainly high status, but whether it represents a, a sort of a semi-frequent thing of whale on the menu, I don't think we know that. That's an interesting question. I think um, perhaps worthy of in further investigation, further tests, so we can sort of build that picture up and get a more accurate story, I suppose. Is there any other evidence of other exotic foods being eaten during the period that you've been describing in the Richard Earl of Cornwall medieval period? There absolutely is, yes. I mean, actually, the animal bone found at Launceston is a really good kind of study ground for understanding changes in diet throughout this period from kind of medieval through to post-medieval and fairly modern times. And generally, for most people in the medieval period, their diet would have been pretty bland. So they had limited access to meat, possibly a little bit more access to seafood, especially living in a, you know, relatively, a place with relatively close access to coasts. But the diet of the average person is going to be focused on bread and grains and fruit and veg and lots of kind of sludgy soups. 
So it doesn't really kind of, it's not what you'd think of as a very varied and mixed diet. But as you move up the social scale in, the, in that kind of medieval period in the times of Richard of Cornwall, you're talking about a diet that features more fish and more meat, which would be unusual for most people. And crucially, as you said, really, a kind of, you know, a, a very varied diet. And the castle assemblage of animal bone excavated there tells us a huge amount about the variety of what they were eating. So we know that as well as kind of staples of meat like wild boar or pig, they were eating venison, which, you know, we think of as a a high status meat now. They were also eating quite exotic sounding things like uh, kid meat, as in young goat, as opposed to anything more sinister. Also things like chicken that we would be familiar with and lots of other fowls. So things like woodcock and partridge, which again, we think of as quite high status sort of foods. And then it goes on from there. So things like goose and swan and crane, which are things we don't think of as eating, but mark out this as a kind of a high status varied diet. And we've got bones of all these animals found at Lanson. And it even goes as far as they were eating seabirds, including a species called the Manx shearwater, which is quite an interesting thing. It's related to the puffin, and it's only really found locally in two colonies on the Isles of Scilly and Lundy, so islands off the coast of Cornwall. So that's you know particularly unusual food to be eating. And then you throw in a great variety of species of fish, dolphin, We've unfortunately got evidence that they've eaten some dolphin as well as whale. So you put the whole picture together and you've got, you can imagine a a dining table at times at feasts that was kind of resplendent with this massive variety of meat, fish, including seabirds and things like that. So a very, very high status menu on display at the castle at times. I suppose to our modern ears, it it sounds a bit experimental, but I suppose back then you're just trying to survive on what nature has given you nearby. So I suppose you're going to take what you can. (laughs) I think there's certainly an element of that, you know, that, that they are doing that. But it is a deliberately, it's a menu that's designed to impress. It is modern experimental chefery, just how restaurants are always sort of, you know, competing to create impressive and exotic dishes. I think that's what the elite would have been doing. And Richard of Cornwall's table would have been a place to experience exotic and unusual foods. So there is an element of, of, you know, making use of what's available with being near the coast and things like that. But there's also an element of, of impressing people with the kind of variety of food that you had at your disposal. Going back to the whalebone at Lanson Castle, did that have any practical use? Because with its size, I can almost imagine maybe a guest was sitting on it around a table. But um... <laughs> Yes, I mean, certainly. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we don't think of bone as being a, a huge resource now for making things. You know, have sometimes you might still have some old bone handle knives or something, but in medieval and post-medieval Europe, bone would have been a, an important resource. Whale bone has kind of pros and cons. It, it's quite a soft, spongy bone, so it kind of has some limits to its uses. But against that, as you say, it's huge. So trying to make something large out of bone, then some of the kind of large sections of bone that you'll get out of a whale carcass 
are really useful. For example, you might be making a nice decorative plaque to decorate a chest or something. And if you need a large flat area of bone, then whalebone provides you with that in a way that some other species wouldn't. So it's very useful. And we know that whalebone, like other forms of bone, were being used for making things like combs, hair and clothes pins, stylus, styli for writing, games counters, chess pieces, all those kind of things that are often made out of bone. And the whale carcass would have been seen as a resource for raw materials as well as meat. Mm. So you could actually get a hammer and chisel and sort of chip bits off of it and then work them into different shapes. Absolutely, yes. And and what we don't really have is, is in the Lanson Castle assemblage, we don't really have huge evidence of them working the bone that we've got in that way, which is quite interesting. So whether they were so kind of spoilt for materials there that they didn't need to use these fragments, or whether that sort of explains your question about where the rest of the whale is, that it was all used up and recycled, it's very possible. But I mean, there were other uses as well. So, you know, a whale would have been a source of blubber and blubber could be rendered to produce oil. And oil would be a very valuable resource as well because, you know, you've got a a huge castle that you need to uh, light in a world with no gas or electric lighting. So oil lamps would have been used throughout the castle. And we've actually found a couple of oil lamps as well. So we know they were using them. So the blubber probably would have been used for oil as well. Remarkable. Could you have cooked with the blubber as well? I'm not aware that they did. I think it was more used for heating oil and uh, lighting oil. I, I'm not aware of them cooking with blubber, but then I'm, I'm not really an expert in culinary practices, so okay. I'm not sure. But one of the other interesting things in terms of that reuse is in the idea of them sort of reusing and recycling, which is quite interesting is there is a unique thing about several of the whale vertebra that we've got, including the one that we've put on display, have deep chop marks on them, on the surfaces. And this suggests that they were reused as a chopping board. And it sort of also plays into the idea, as I said right at the the top, that they were kind of found in the kitchens as well. So as well as being used as a source of meat, the actual vertebra bone is probably finding a life beyond the dining table but within the kitchen so these chop marks are kind of parallel chop marks on the face or the sort of drum shaped face of the bone and they're not consistent with the kind of butchery of of it they look more like kind of chops from a cleaver so it looks really likely that they that they were actually sort of once they'd sort of served up the whale, they saw this as, as a um, potential resource that they could use for making something useful like chopping boards. You could imagine something looking like that. In the kitchen of a chef now, it is a, you know, a nice meaty kind of thick block, which makes a great surface for cutting. I suspect for the chef working on it, it was almost a sign of his status working on an object like that, a special tool that was unique. I'm sure, I'm sure that had a sort of cachet at the time as well. Quite possibly, yeah. Certainly the, the whalebone has, you know, as well as producing meat, it, it has a, a sort of a use, useful life beyond that as well. It's fascinating, really. I mean, really, you should rename this podcast as The Whale and Lanson Castle because almost the whale is, has got so much to talk about, you know. 
it was a really funny object to put on display because the moment we got this object out of our stores and looked at it and thought about displaying it, everybody's got very excited about it all the way along, through from staff to people we talked about outside of English heritage. And the response to it from everyone we talked to is just to be completely shocked and fascinated by the idea that an object like that would be found at a castle. So it's got so many stories to it. Yes, and so many questions. How can visitors see this whalebone, this vertebra, today? Well, the whalebone's part of work we've done refreshing and renewing the museum display there. So there's lots of objects relating to the wider history of the castle through from this sort of medieval period through to the kind of prison stories that Georgia was talking about. And that museum is just part of the experience that visitors can have to the site. And if they come to the site, then you've also got the opportunity to climb that spectacular tower that Richard created at Lanson Castle and see the views. And on a clear day, those views across to Dartmoor and Bodmin are quite spectacular. You can also have a go at building your own tower from some fabulous castle building blocks that we've got. And you can have a picnic too. So there's lots that you can do when you're at Lanson. Yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover, isn't there? And it's uh, quite hilly being on this mound, this uh, Norman mound that was originally built. So when people are visiting, do they need to sort of bring appropriate footwear and uh, that sort of thing? There are quite a few steps involved. So yes, good solid footwear and the ability to climb up and down steps is essential. But it's worth it once you get to the top of oh, absolutely. the, the steps. The views, yeah. the views are really, really impressive when you get up there. Can you see either of the coasts? Not quite, but you can see across to some of the key hills on Bodmin. It sounds idyllic. Are there lots of shrubs and flowers in the spring and summer as well? Yeah, some on the Mott. So we have spring flowers on the Mott. And you've also got the grounds, the castle grounds, which are now used by members of the public for community events and baby yoga and other sorts of things on a daily basis. Anything else that visitors can do on a day trip if they were to come to Lanson Castle? Well, I think if you're going to come to Lanson Castle, as well as visiting the castle, it's really, really worth having a good look around the town because the town is within the footprint of the wider castle walls. And there are many buildings around Lanson that, you know, have those elements of history there. So I recommend a good walk around. Finally, then, for both of you, what's the future for Lanson Castle. We've talked so much about its past, but uh, what else is there to discover? What more stories are to be told about Lanson Castle? Well, I think, you know, some really nice work. We touched on the idea of the animal bone and things like the more work that can be done. I mean, we have a huge collection, as I said, and it's actually one of our more active research collections within English Heritage. We have lots and lots of academics and students coming to look at the collection all the time fascinating stories going to emerge, I think, about what we can understand about the lives of people, particularly from that collection. Wouldn't it be fascinating as well if, you know, another part of that bone was turned into a comb or something that was then found, I don't know, down at Tintagel Castle or somewhere like that, or or another archaeological site? I think that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always a possibility that we will uncover more objects or also make links between things. As I said, when, when you've got a collection the size that we do that is many, many tons of archaeology, some of the links that are yet to be made and the, the stories that we will uncover through continued research on the collection uh, is really exciting. 
you know, it's never a finished project, putting objects on display and telling the stories. There's always a lot more to do and a lot more we can find out about the history of the site. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, join us for a story about one woman's role in 17th century Civil War espionage. Jane had concocted or helped to concoct a plan to have Charles I escape to Holland. In this time, women were automatically invisible. People simply refused that women could possibly be involved in such plots. Thanks for listening. See you next time.